Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of Rabbi Adam Klickfeld's weekly Rashi study class. If you haven't yet, I want to say this again, please join the WhatsApp group for Rashi. It's a much quicker way for me to give you updates than the email chain. And if you don't have the invitation for the WhatsApp chat, let me know and I will send it to you. Uh, but it's just a quicker way for me to update the class than uh, finding the last time I sent the email out to everybody. Um, and the reason why I'm doing it from here is that we have a, a full day senior staff retreat today that we're doing up at the Scribble Center and it started at 930. So I wanted to get as much of the class in as possible. So this was the best way to do it. Uh, I want to dedicate the study today to two of my teachers who passed away yesterday and today. I lost two uh, um, really impact rich teachers in my rabbinical school training, um, both of approximately the same generation, and they both passed away in the last 24 hours. Uh, And you are, um, you know, in some ways an indirect recipient of some of their wisdom, particularly the one who I learned died second. The one who I learned died first was Rabbi Israel Frankis. He was my Talmud teacher at JTS. He was uh, Elliot Dorf Talmud teacher at JTS. That's how long he's been teaching there. Uh, He was, when, by the time I got him, Yes, probably already in his mid to late 60s. Uh, when Elliot studied with him, he talked about him as an amazing young whippersnapper who had survived the Shoah uh, and had that, you know, Eastern European yeshiva style approach to studying the text, but had found himself at JTS um, and was just a beloved, beloved teacher for many, many years. Uh, he had an old fashioned way of teaching, the type of teaching now that, like, you know, it, it probably wouldn't satisfy an end of a semester um, survey on your teacher's teaching skills. Um, he he, when he, the more he picked on you, the more he loved you, right? Uh, the more he loved you, the more he picked on you. So when he picked on you in class in ways that, again, w- wouldn't look like the right way to do things now, you actually knew that you were a special student to him. <laughs> I'll, t- I'll tell you one, um, this, this wouldn't fly now, but it was such a Rabbi Frank story. I've told this before where I was sitting in class with him and he was uh, asking the person next to me, uh, David, to re- read the piece of text, which is called a sugya. And he had a high Eastern European voice and accent. He goes, he goes David, read the sugya. And David read the sugya. He said, okay, now explain it. He explained it. And Rabbi Frank says, okay, David, read the sugya again. And he read it again. He says, okay, now explain it again. Explain it again. He says, okay, David, read the sugya one more time. <clears throat> he read it. He says, okay, now explain it another time. He did. He says, if you're wondering why I should do that, I wanted to see if someone could say something so stupid three times in a row. <laughs> With the biggest smile and heart, because it was a way of saying, David, you'd be pre- prepared more. And that would never fly in current pedagogy, but we all knew the love with which he was sharing it. And David, and he had a very close relationship for many years. That was his style. And I learned a lot about um, <clears throat> how to be uh, personally engaged with your students uh, from him. And I learned a lot about how to um, break down the arguments of the Talmud from him. And uh, um, if many of you know, Bill and Rabbi Gail, Bill Sullivan and Rabbi Gail, they've been friendly with that family for many, many years. And that's why I found out that it's from. So Rabbi Frank is a Hezichro Baruch. And Dr. Avram Holtz, Dr. Avram Holtz was my teacher for biblical grammar. So in some ways, even more of what you and I do together and Vav Ha'ipuchs and Ahoys and Beged Kefets and, and, and long shvas and short shvas and long vowels, that came from Dr. Holtz. By the time I had that class, my modern contemporary Hebrew speaking was pretty darn good. And I had an instinctual understanding of how to understand a pasuk from the Torah. I didn't know the nitty gritty and I loved that class. Many people in rabbinical school hated that class because it was so picayune and so focused on every single dot. And it really spoke, spoke to me. Um, and I'll tell you uh, one Avram Holt story uh, in his memory. So when we were learning the laws of Beged Kefet, right? The six letters that if they begin a word or a syllable, they get a dagesh. Why? So it's a kaf, not a chaf, and a bet, not a bet. And, uh, and then Beged Kefet is impacted by ahoy, aleph, hey, vav, yud, which if it is the ends a word before a Beged Kefet, then it takes out the dagesh of the next word, right? Um, and But only if the two words that we discussed before are what was called conjunctive trup where the, the two words are connected to one another musically, not disconnected. And so 
Um, so um, uh, a, a common uh, a common question on that is like why it's mi kamocha and mi chamocha, right? Because it shouldn't be the same. And the question, the idea is that the kaf of kamocha begins a word, but the two ways that mi chamocha and mi kamocha are written, one of them is in disjunctive trap, one of them is, is in conjunctive trap, which is why one of them is mi kamocha, one mi chamocha. I was learning this, and then I and and, and the fact that you start. Um, if if the syllable before a beged kefet letter ends in a in a short it was a short vowel with a shva nach a resting shva, then the letter of the beged kefet gets a dagesh. So I had the following question. I said in the via hafta it's um, okay. I'm gonna write write it into the into the chat. So you have bishoch b'cha. And I can't write it with notes in this, uh, with uh, vowels. So the bet, the second bet of beshoch becha is a b, and why? Because the vowel underneath the chaf is a shvanach, a resting shva. Why? Because the vowel under the shin is a kamatz katan, a short vowel. So it's beshoch becha appropriately, as we learned it. But think of ahavat olam Friday night, ahavat olam Beit Yisrael, chavta Torah mitzvot chukim mishpatim otana. Okay, same construct. So it should be the same um, rules that the vowel under the chaf of Bishochvenu is a shvanach, a resting shva. Why? Because the vowel under the shin before it is a kamatzkatan, which is a short vowel. So why is it bishoch bishoch bicha hard ba, but bishochvenu soft va? Should be the same exact rule. I thought of this and I was walking through the halls of JTS one day. I remember exactly what floor I was on. And I saw Dr. Holtz. I said, Dr. Holtz, you know, I've been thinking about this. And you taught me about the Shvanah and the Shvanach and the Beged Kefet. And why is it that in the Vyahafta it's Beshoch Becha? And in Avahalam it's Beshoch Veinu. And this is what he did. He took off his glasses and he goes like this. And he goes, Oh, Beshoch Becha, Beshoch Veinu. Yeah. And then he walked away. It was as if. <laughs> It was as if all he needed was someone to ask the question. He's like, I, I've, I've taught them enough. If they're asking me that question, it doesn't matter what the answer is. Oh, what? he was so delighted that I asked him that question. And it was, it was uh, a way of indicating um, just how much he loved his students and how much he loved this material and that he had, he, had, he had taught at least one class to such a level that someone could ask that question. And I never got an answer. I never, he never told me what the answer was. So... Yehizach uh, Rambaruch, two significant influences in my religious education and uh, having died within 24 hours. With that in mind, let's go study some text. Um, we are on uh, chapter eight of the book of Shmot, having just um, finished verse 22, on which there was uh, no Rashi. Sorry, we just finished the verse in 22 and we haven't yet read the Rashi. Um, so let's read the verse again to get moving into what's going on, and then we'll see what Rashi has to say. Um, just spotlighting my video. Okay. Vayomer um, Moshe. <clears throat> Moses said back to um, to Pharaoh, after Pharaoh had said in the previous verse, go and, and off, make an offering to your God in the land. It's not appropriate, it's not okay, or maybe we're not prepared from the word muhan. It's hard to know exactly what the root is to do this. And the, the, the thing that Rashi is going to be dealing with is the very thing that makes this verse hard to translate. So I'll just choose one translation now as we're saying it, and then Rashi is going to tell us the different possibilities. For we would be offering to Adonai, our God, the to'eva, the, uh, an, abo- an, abomin- an abominable thing to Egypt, or I'll hedge my bets, or it would be an abominable thing to Egypt for us to do the sacrifice. One of the two. Uh, is it possible that we would slaughter something that's a to'eva to them, a, an abomination, or uh, by slaughtering something that is not an abomination, but slaughtering something revered to them, that would be an abomination. Laying a hem in front of their eyes, the lowest and they will not stone us. 
right? So the two basic possibilities. Somehow the thing itself is an abomination and therefore still slaughtering it in front of them would um, would upset them. You could make the argument that if the thing's an abomination, that they wouldn't mind it being slaughtered or slaughtering something that is revered by them and then the act of the slaughtering <laughs> is an abomination, all working on that word toeva. That's what we. That's as far as we got. And Rashi's going to weigh in on this. Any comments or questions um, on the verse itself before we jump into the Rashi? Okay. Um, let's see. Uh, Joanna, do you want to read the Rashi on uh, Toavat Mitzrayim? Toavat Mitzrayim, Yirat Mitzrayim, Tamal, Ol. I can't quite make out this word. Umalkom, umelkom toavat bene amon from Malachim. The etel Yisrael kore ota toiva. Pause there. And while you're doing that, I'm going to share the screen from the verse in the Book of Kings that has that verse that uh, you that he quotes. Okay, go ahead. Okay. Um. Oh. What's the first way Rashi weighs in on how we're supposed to understand Toeva? Yes. One second. Okay. So Toevat Mitzrayim is um has to do with the the what the Egyptians have Yira for, what the Egyptians have or or reverence for. Good. So what, what Joanna has has pointed out properly is that even even in Rashi's attempting to break down what toiva is, he's using a word that 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 means something slightly different than how he's using it. So he's saying toivat mitzrayim is like the yirah, the reverence of Egypt. But what he means by that is the thing for which the Egyptians have reverence, right? Why he doesn't say it that way, I'm not sure. I think he's trying to say it in a way that kind of that matches the syntax of Toibat Mitzrayim. But when he says Yirat Mitzrayim, the fear, literally the fear or the awe of Egypt, it does not mean um, people being afraid of Egypt. It does not mean Egypt's having reverence. It means the thing for which Egypt, the Egyptians have reverence, their God, as it were. And some of the sub-commentary on Rashi, which you don't have in front of you, says, their idolatry which is being the, 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 the Hebrew phrase is their, their reverence, but the things for which they have reverence, okay? And he gives us an example, like in this verse from <clears throat> Second Book of Kings, uh, chapter 23, verse 13. Okay, so the, um, the context for this verse is that King Yoshaya uh, came across a, a lot of uh, uh, private altars and bamot and was considered a good king who got rid of a lot of the schmutzy idolatry in the in the kingdom at the time and he is um destroying lots of the ones that he finds right so or and this is uh, a verse in the middle of that story the et habamot asher all of those um private altars that were surrounding jerusalem Ashir mimin lahar hamashit, which is to the, um, it's, it's to the right, but to the right in biblical language sometimes meant south. Tahar hamashit, the mountain of the destroyer. Ashir banash lomo, melech Israel, that the King Solomon had built. Laashtarot, um, he had built, you know, King Solomon, uh, um, may have built a temple, but he also, um, kind of satisfied some of the contemporaneous urge for idolatry, believe it or not. Um, and he had built it for Ashtarot, one of the, um, uh, that's probably the word from which we get, es, uh, that the name Esther is derived from Ashtarti, one of that, the ancient Assyrian fertility gods, Shikut Sidonim, which is uh, an abomination of the Sidonians. Again, in this phrase, Shikut Sidonim, an abomination of them means the thing that they worship, but to us, we're calling an abomination. Uh, uh, and it's also an abomination for the Kmushites. Shikutz uh, Moab is also an abomination for Moab. Ula Milkom and to Milkom, and also to Avat Bnei Amon, the detestable thing of the Ammonites. Right? It's almost like a way of saying I I don't even want to refer. How do you refer to their gods? The thing that 
they think are gods. I don't even want to use the word God to 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 say that, right? Um, and we may have that problem in English, right? We do we do we use the English word for divinity to refer to a divinity that people are worshiping that we don't think is a divinity? In biblical talk, they use almost the opposite word. They use the detestable thing or the abomination, the abomination, still to refer to the actual divinity, the thing that is being revered, right? And here, to'eva is being used in that language, uh, in that way, so would have, so shikuts, same thing. Rick, your hand is up. Yes, hi. So in that verse there, <clears throat> so sheketz is related to shikuts, I'm, I'm guessing, right? And um, what you were saying about the the gods, I've I've read that like they would we would take Melech and put the vowels of Boshet in there, so it, that's how we got Molech or something like that. The the shame or the, we we wouldn't want to call their gods by the real name, but we would change the vowels so it was like an insult. You you know, I'm I'm I asking. Have you heard of that? I don't know of that. That's fascinating. I never heard of that as a possible etymology of the word molech, but that's possible. Um, it is an interesting question. What what contemporaneous words you should use to refer to something that other people believe in and that you think doesn't have any merit whatsoever? It's hard to use. I mean, it's one of the reasons I have no problem writing out G-O-D without the, the O in the middle, because I don't think the English word G-O-D itself has any kind of reverence to it. It's just an English word describing a concept. And so I don't mind, you know, talking about, you know, foreign gods. I'm not I'm not ascribing to those foreign gods a divinity by attaching the English word God to it. But it may have been that our ancestors were not comfortable that even though we have Elohim, right? Their 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 Elohim as a as a reference of a thing that we're not supposed to be following. So it wasn't a consistent thing. Remember, biblical culture and biblical linguistic culture is not a single line of intellectual thought. It's 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 tens of thousands of people over a thousand years, right? So there was not full consistency in how the language was used. Um, okay, Joanna. So anything you want to add on that before you keep going? No, I think I'm good to go. Okay, so what does Etzel Yisrael Kore Ota Toiba mean? Um, according to, or like by Yisrael, it would be a, it it would be called a Toiba, something um, uh, reprehensible or abominable. Right, something reprehensible, even though the thing that is being discussed is the thing that is reverent for the people uh, it, connected to them. And I think what Rashi is saying here, I'm not certain, is that maybe verse 22 is Moses not addressing Pharaoh, but Moses addressing the people, right? And there are two ways of looking at it. So you look back in verse 21, Pharaoh says to Moses, to Aaron, go and offer the sacrifice to your God. And then Vayomer Moshe, Moses said, we assume that he's speaking to Pharaoh, saying, no, we can't do that. It would be a, it would be a, a uh, a, a toeva, it would be a toeva to Egypt that we would be sacrificing. It's impossible that we would sacrifice it and not then not stone us, right? So since the previous verse was Pharaoh speaking to Moses and Aaron, we assume the flow is that Moses is speaking now back to in Pharaoh's presence. I think what Rashi is saying is here, verse 22 is Moses having kind of an internal conversation with his inner court. And he's saying, I don't know if we can do this. He wants us to do this here. Is it possible that we're going to uh, sacrifice that schmutzy, you know, we're, we're going we're gonna to make a pretend sacrifice to the thing that they consider to be, or we're going to sacrifice the thing that they consider to be um, a godlike animal, and they're not going to stone us, but that he would not necessarily have used that language in front of Pharaoh, right? In front of Pharaoh, he would have referred to um, the the word that they used to describe that divinity. He would not have used a detestable word to define to describe their divinity in his presence, maybe. Rashi's saying maybe because we have a Devara hair coming up. Uh, Norm? It seems to me that it has to be Moshe speaking to Pharaoh because it says, and he said, and he speaks for two verses, and then we get a response from Pharaoh. <laughs> so it, does, it doesn't seem consistent to me that he might be simply having an aside with, Aaron or somebody else, I think he's still in the presence of Pharaoh, speaking to Pharaoh, being reasonably frank about the fact that 
they can't do this sacrifice where they are in the midst of the Egyptians. They got to go someplace where they'll be able to do their sacrifices without offending the Egyptians. Yeah. I Listen, think I, that any minority religious group that exists within a, a dominant religious culture that's different can understand the idea that there are things we just don't do with them, or at least not ordinarily. I think that's the simplest way indeed to understand the flow. And it bothers Rashi a bit that Moshe would have used that vocabulary word to basically insult Pharaoh's God in front of Pharaoh. Right? That's the problem. The problem, that, that makes sense in terms of the flow of the story, but then why would the word to'eva have been used? Maybe this was Moshe's internal conversation because he never would have referred to, hey, Pharaoh, if we, if we slaughter your, to- your abominable thing in front of, in front of uh, you, you're not gonna, you're not gonna, how would you not stone us, right? He would stone him for even saying that. Right. It could turn into a Monty Python left Brian's get, you know, like who said Jehovah. Right. So um, so it, so it could be that. But then Rashi is going to disagree with himself, or at least offer a second opinion. Um, and you'll see how he resolves it there. And it's, it's just a subtle difference, but it's a difference. I see Rick's hand. Yeah, to answer that, um, it's Le'enehem, it's their eyes. So and um, uh, Yiskalun. Yiskalunu is the third person, so it would yeah. make sense that he's talking to the Israelites about the Egyptians' third person and not talking to Pharaoh, because then it would be your people, I would suppose, and you're going to stone us. I don't know. Yeah, you, you could. Yes, so that that argues slightly in the opposite direction of what Norma's saying. You could even read that one differently. That that if, if you want to insist that he's speaking to Pharaoh, the Nahem is the, you know, the commoners, right? Those, you know, Pharaoh, you and I understand each other, but how, how is it possible that we're going to sacrifice this thing in front of them and they're not going to understand the deal we made and they're, they're just going to come naturally to stone us, right? So you could argue it both ways, even on that language. Diane Larry? So I'm coming, we're having home internet problems. So we got to be on two different devices. I hope you can hear me on my phone right now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I admit that I'm confused, but that's probably because we've missed so many weeks, and also because I'm probably still a little jet lagged from yesterday. Hey, um, I didn't know. Say again. I ain't no excuse. <laughs> um, maybe you talked about this previously. Uh, it just seems to me to be. It seems to me that God and Moses are so disingenuous here, and I mean, if I were Pharaoh, I'd say, "And now you ask me this." But now you tell me this, and you ask me to go sacrifice. Now And now you come up with a reason why you can't go sacrifice? That's not my problem. That's your problem. Did you guys discuss this this issue sort of about you know t- the way in which it's all developed? I think I, I got most of that, Larry, but I don't know if I got all of it. Um, so say it again. <laughs> The way I'm seeing what's happening here, the whole conversation, I'm not talking about the Rashi, I'm talking about what's happened is is several times now Moses has gone to to Pharaoh, God's told him to go to Pharaoh, ask the people to 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 go sacrifice. And finally, Pharaoh is now agreeing. And then after he agrees, Moses says, Yeah, but we really can't do it. And then here's the reason why we can't do it. And if I'm Pharaoh, I'm getting pretty frustrated. I think that Moses and his God have been very straight with me. If you're fair, you're frustrated because you, Pharaoh, think that you finally relented and now they're giving us an excuse for why they can't do what they're asking to do here? Yes, and it's completely out of my power as Pharaoh. Yeah, but okay, why did so they ask? it may be that that you're not you're having missed a class or two may, may be impacting here because in verse 21, Pharaoh relents and says you can do it but you've got to do it here. I'm not letting you leave to do it, right? Right? Um, offer a sacrifice to your God in the land. Ba'aretz does not mean Eretz Yisrael as it would in modern Hebrew parlance. It means here, like, like exactly where you are. I'm, I'm, I'm half relenting or I'm quarter relenting. And Moshe, you know, the, the whole notion of the rationale for why they're leaving is to offer a sacrifice to God as we know, is just to get them out, right? It's just a pretense um, to get them out. And if Pharaoh is, is basically half relenting, and the thing he's relenting on is the, is the sacrifice and not the departure, 
then that's not going to be anywhere close to good enough. So I can appreciate how you would um, sympathize with Pharaoh's frustration, but Pharaoh is in Pharaoh twenty in verse twenty one is not agreeing to the one thing which is the ikar of what's being requested. Does that make sense? Understood completely. I yeah, understood. I should have gone back and caught up, I, and I didn't. Okay, it's okay. Um, okay, so let's get uh, to the uh, the the Acher, or in this case, the language he uses the od yesh lomar. He gives an, another explanation for um, for this phrase, which is going to push more in the direction of what um, Norm was saying. Ve'od yesh lomar belashon acher to'avat mitraim davar sinui hulu mitraim zivicha she'anu zovchim she'hare yiratam anu zovchim. So another way of looking at this in, in different words is to understand to'avat mitraim, this reprehensible thing of or to mitraim, is it would be a, a hateful thing to mitraim um, for the sacrifice that we are sacrificing. Um, what we are sacrificing is something that is um, treated with awe by the by the mitrim. Right, and so how could this be something that, according to Rashi, Moshe could say in front of Pharaoh without insulting Pharaoh? Because I think it's quite the opposite, and a little bit to Larry's point is what Moshe's trying to present to Pharaoh is we're trying to be most respectful of your culture. We don't want to do in front of your people something that, while it's acceptable to us, will be viewed as unacceptable in your own culture and your own religion. Precisely, right? So in, in the second reading, Rashi is saying the word to'eva doesn't revert to the thing that is revered that we're sacrificing. It refers to our having the chutzpah to sacrifice something that you revere, right? And that Moshe could say in front of Pharaoh politely, Pharaoh, we both know it would be a to'eva to you for us to sacrifice this. So we're not going to do this in front of you. That would be insulting to you, right? So, and we've talked about this a lot that in the uh, in in um, in in a possessive a possessive phrase can mean lots of things, right? Egypt's toeva could mean right the the thing that Egypt considers a toeva, or the thing that Egypt has done, which is a toeva, or the first one that was even farther away from what we normally think, right? The the um, the the are referring to the thing that Egypt reveres itself as a toeva, right? So once you have a, a two-word or three-word possessive phrase, what, what the of in the possession refers to is a question. And Rashi is saying, if you really wanted to read it, that Moshe is speaking to Pharaoh as Norm was wanting to read it, you can read it this way, right? Pharaoh, there's no way I would even consider deigning to do this because you would agree that it's a toeva if we were to sacrifice. It's not toeva to us, but it's a toeva to you. Okay, good. Uh, anything else in that verse? Okay. Um, then Rashi has a one-word comment on the last phrase, Veloyus Kulunu, and the reason why he has to make that uh, comment is because there's no punctuation in the in the to, in the Torah. So on the word Veloyiskuluni, Yiskalunu, what does Rashi say? Bitmi'a. Right. What does bitmi'a mean? with um like astonishment or amazement right it's basically rashi's way of saying it's an interrogative right it's a question mark right don't read it flatly that um that moses is saying um we we, we will offer a toiva we will sacrifice that which is toiva to the egyptians eyes and they will not stone us it's not a period it's and they won't stone us Right? How how could it possibly be? But there's no question mark in the Torah. So unless you think, reader, that the uh, that you, there's a way to understand it plainly, no, it's only with a question mark interrogative at the end. Not not only a question mark, but I think this is Rashi's way of saying a rhetorical question. Good. Yes. Thank you. That's that's sharper. Right. It's not just a question mark, but it's a rhetorical question mark. Correct. Good. All right. Um, then we've got two more verses. Rashi is quiet on the next two verses, but what I'd like to do in this situation is I find at least one comment 
and then each verse so that we go, we can show that we went from pshat to a little bit of drash on each one. So let's uh, switch the reader and then I will um, pull up a different comment on each one. Uh, Barry, do you want to read verse 23? <laughs> We must make a three-day trip into the wilderness and sacrifice to Adonai, our God, uh, in the manner that he will tell us. Okay, good. Um, and going back on the previous verse, right, let's agree that whomever Moses is probably speaking to in verse 22 He's also speaking to in verse 23, right? So, and the, and the options were he's having a side conversation with his own advisors or he's speaking to Pharaoh. The most common way of understanding the flow of the story, aside from the question that Rashi asked in the previous verse, that he's speaking to Pharaoh. So let's let's go with that, right? So he goes with that. He says to Pharaoh, right, since we can't do it in front of you and have you not stone us, we need to go for three days in the, in the desert. And there we will sacrifice to Adonai our God. Uh, just as um, God, uh, the subject of Yomar is God, just as God had said to us, just as God has required of us. Okay. Why three days? Why, why, why three days? Okay, so that's one question uh, you can ask on the verse, right? What, what's the significance of the three days? Let's pause and see any other questions or comments on the verse that, you know, you, you can imagine Rashi asked, but he didn't because Rashi says nothing on this verse or anything that you would ask about the verse that doesn't make sense. Floor is open. Yes, Joanna. So the three days journey is that saying that we need to go a distance, like in order to be respectful to, to you, we need to be at least a distance of three days away. Or is it we need to be away for a total of three days? Because in that we need to be a distance of three days away. I wonder if it could possibly be read as Moshe plotting the final escape, right? Like if we're three days away from there, we can keep moving further away and not saying like, and, you know, necessarily, and we'll be back in three days. It's a great question. I'm laughing because, um, you know, in certain groups of friends, certain movies and their lines like substitute for dialogue between people because you're just constantly quoting verses from movies, right? So in one of my groups of friends, uh, this is going to sound so silly, but there's uh, remember the Lethal Weapon movies in the 80s and early 90s with Mel Gibson and Danny Glover. And there's one scene where they're debating whether or not they have to. There's a bomb that might go off, and they have a quick second after they release, and and they say, "Okay, we're going to go on the three. And then right before they do it, they say, "Is is it? Are we going on the three or the three and? Is it one, two, three, or one, two, three, go?" And it's a matter of microseconds, and they're debating. Does the going on the three mean going on the three and, right? And my friends and I talk about it all the time. So you're asking is, is, is the three days, three days from the time we leave you to then come back? Are we going out for three days, spending a day sacrificing, going back? How long is this journey? Um, and is it possible that Moshe is speaking, you know, that, that Moshe is intending for Pharaoh to hear total three days? And what Moshe intends is we're going to go out a three days distance. And by the time we're that far, we'll never come back. Right. So I, I wonder if that playfulness is implied um, because it doesn't say explicitly how long we're supposed to track all that. Good. Uh, Rick, was your hand up? Yeah, I was debating whether to say anything. But yeah. Um, so I wanted to point out the trope, of course, the uh, the Yativ on Derech. It really highlights that word, which just means road. Right. So, yes, I agree with Joanne. He's he's planning the escape. And part of it is letting Pharaoh, I'm guessing, letting Pharaoh think that they're going to go along the road, along the, the coast. But no, we're not going to go there because that's where all the fortifications are. We're going to go south uh, to get away. But it's interesting to me that the subject of that verse is four words into it because the emphasis is uh, is on the... Uh, the way out instead of the, we are leaving, the nelech comes uh, afterward. That's unusual in a sentence. You usually have the verb and then the subject, right? So, well, usual in um, wait, usual in biblical Hebrew or usual in the way we speak? Um, 
biblical Hebrew, usually, you know, Vayomer Moshe, you have the verb and then you have the subject. So here you got Derek Shloshet Yamim, and then you have the subject. So that's kind of unusual from what I've read. The word oh, name, the word yeah. has the verb and the subject in it, because the subject of the verb Nelech is the we. Yes. The, but so the 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 derech Bloshe yamim is sort of like an indirect object, or it's a it's a it's a it's a phrase explaining where we're going. But the but this happens. Um, but but the the the, the Nelech includes the subject in it. Right. Right. The other thing was. Um, only because I volunteered to read Torah on Thanksgiving weekend, I looked at Vayetze and Lavan and Yaakov, they separate three days journey. So maybe three days was just a thing. Hey, you want to separate two peoples? It's three days walking. So um, I just I just saw that. So yeah, yeah that's good. Yeah, that's it. A couple of things to say on that, right? So one, as you said, uh, are we supposed to understand three days as being precise, or is this like uh, you know, the, the Bible has bit, has um, symbolic numbers, right, referring to amounts of people and sometimes amounts of time, and maybe this is just a way of saying, you know, a good amount of time as opposed to the precision of three. What I also like that you point out, pointed out, Rick, is the word derech itself is a weird word. Because derech means road, but it's not it's not used to mean road here. It's used to mean a road that will take a certain amount of time to traverse, right? Uh, 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 it's almost referring to the word, to the journey itself. And if you see Uncleus's translation, he translates derech as mahalach, which is the same thing in Hebrew as it is in Aramaic, right? Holech is to go. Mahalach is a journey. It's an it's a it's a it's a you know, an extension of, of geography. So the word derech itself is a little interesting, uh, whether or not you focus on the trap. Barry? Yeah, um, I'm going to go along with, with Rick's approach, uh, at the, beginning with derech. And also, thank you, uh, Rick, for uh, paralleling this with the other story in derech. This, this derech, we're just following the tova issue. And so the, the, the derrick of three is is a separation of our, their cooties from our cooties. <laughs> we, we have to get away. We have to be at, at enough distance so it's no longer a tovar. And, and that's what they, it starts with derrick three in the uh, days. That, that's the, the core of this here. And, and uh, it, it, I don't think it's to get away, to escape. Because they're on foot and they're using chariots, they'd be there in, in a half a day. Um, so I, I think that it has to do with the um, the, the the separation of the Toaba issue. Yeah, um, with that in mind, let's look at um, the commentary of the Chizkuni on this verse. I'll share it with this, share it with everybody. Um, again, Rashi is quiet on the verse. So on the phrase, let me just move this. Um, what I want you to think about as you read this is to, to be a Rashi on Chizkuni. Why is Chizkuni saying this? What is the significance of his comment? Not only what has what puzzle in the verse has he solved, but what's the impact? What's the sermonic, midrashic, narrative impact on what he's saying? Okay. That's the the opening words. And then he writes, Shekain Bayom Hasheni Chanu Hamibar. For after all, on the second day, on the second day, what? Of Exodus. He doesn't say this explicitly, but he's referring ahead to when, when they actually got out, which is obviously not after the end of the plague of Arov, what happened? They encamped Bitchilat Hamidbar at the beginning of the wilderness, at the edge of the wilderness, you know, the the past the um you know the greater uh Mitzrayim and Goshen metropolitan area, but rather than the edge of the wilderness, Kidichtiv, as it says, So he quotes chapter 13, verse 20, which we'll get to, I don't know, three years. Here's the verse in its context, right? So this is, um, just so you uh, see exactly what came beforehand, they're leaving, right? Chapter 13, they're actually leaving Egypt. The previous verse is Moses taking the bones of Joseph because he, uh, he had sworn uh, to do that. So they're literally on the way out. This is not the preparation for Exodus, but this is Exodus in real time. They left 
this place called Sukkot, Sukkot, which was clearly still within greater metropolitan area. They settled in a place called Etam. Ketzeh means edge, edge of the wilderness. And Rashi, an R verse says, what does Biktseh Hamidbar mean? Perush Bitchilat Hamidbar, at the beginning of the desert. Okay. Um, if you look at the English, the English kind of gives it away a bit, so I'm going to kind of get rid of it, because the English, the English, this online English translation of Chizkuni is sort of like a, a translation and a, um, um, a paraphrasing and kind of gives some of it away. What question is Chizkuni Answering the verse, what's his answer? Why does he say it? What's significant here? Why does he throw us ahead to Exodus night when what we're talking about is what Moses said either to Pharaoh or his own people just in response to one miniature moment within the pre-Exodus story? Now figure out the days and where they're going to be. Those three yeah. days, it's hard, you know, is it like like you guys were saying before, is it three days from a certain point or is it their midpoint? Okay, and it still raises the question as to why he's mapping this particular verse onto what actually ends up taking place five chapters later. I see Larry's hand. Sorry. Um, Either this was a dry run for that, or perhaps even, well, if Pharaoh had given in at this point, we wouldn't have had the rest of the plagues, and this would have been the takeoff. And he would have gone back to the people and said, quick, make case, you know, and pack and go. That's interesting. I never thought of it that way, saying that what Hiskuni is saying is that had Pharaoh relented, all the misery could have ended here. Because in the end, that's actually what they ended up doing. Right. Okay. Possible. Is that, did I understand you correctly? Larry, did I understand you correctly? Yeah, you, you, you did. I, I was offering two explanations. The first being it was a dry run. They would do this and then go back and say, yeah, that works. Or alternatively, it was really the intention to, as you, as you, as you understood from me, this is the intention for the, um, for the getaway right away. And then we, we and Pharaoh and the Egyptians would have avoided all the misery. Got it. Okay. Stevie and then Barry. Yeah. In Parshas Masse, when it lists all the locations, there is in the first week, like a three days journey that has the same sort of language but it comes after a couple of places. So it like, it seems to be a different geography, right? Like a different three day chunk of journey that's being described there. So I think it's just trying to resolve this sort of contradiction. Okay. And what, what does Chizkuni as a medieval Parshan gain from that? Particularly if you also think of him as a, a minor sermon giver, not just a resolving a problem in a verse. Uh, can you put it back on the screen? <laughs> yeah. Uh, hmm. And to, and by the way, to that question, I have a thought. I'm not certain, right? I can't interview Chizkuni, but I have a thought. While you're thinking, Barry, was your hand up bef- uh, again or still? Okay. Um, so I'll share my thought. I think Chizkuni does not want Moshe to be presented as a prevaricator. That he was... That every when Chizkuni wants it to be that everything Moshe said specifically to Pharaoh, what you know, had plausible deniability, or or the opposite, had 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 remnants of truth. And even though we know the reason why Moses wants to let Pharaoh get them three days out is going back to what Larry said is to is to actually get them out because once they're out, they'll never come back. He doesn't want to have Moshe say anything in Pharaoh's presence that after which could be de- described as, as a lie, as a sheker. So what does he do? He says, by the way, reader, it's kind of what happened, right? So like they, they left, and what did they do? A couple of days after leaving, they encamped. And, what, and, and almost like this is a version of, uh, of um, Yaakov wearing a kippah. What, do you think they wouldn't have made a sacrifice to their God where they camped? And they, they didn't just go for days and days and days and days. They went a couple of days' journey. That's why Chizkuni uh, says, Bar, the edge of the desert, doesn't mean the far edge of the desert. It means at the beginning of the desert. So what Moshe was saying to Pharaoh here was not the whole truth, but it was the truth. And on Exodus night, they actually did that, right? 
I'm guessing. I don't know if that's what Chizkuni means, but that's what it does for me. It presents Moshe as um, slightly more truthy than just trying to dupe uh, Pharaoh into uh, into the, into letting them go. Larry, it, only if you're done with this line of thought. I was done with that line of thought. Yeah, I want to go back for one second to um, to to verse twenty two, um, and I'm sorry that Toba's not there. Right, Toba's not around. I didn't see Tova today. So I'm going to take the role of Tova, but only because I'm reading Alter. Okay. And Alter thinks that this is historically inaccurate. The business about the Egyptians um, being um, shocked at the sacrifice of, uh, of, of animals, of livestock. Okay. He says, the most likely meaning of for the abomination of Egypt we shall sacrifice is that the Hebrews will sacrifice cattle or other beasts considered taboo by the Egyptians and so infuriate them, which we all understood. There is some evidence that Egypt in the late Bronze Age was in fact quite tolerant about different kinds of sacrifice. The Hebrew writer could well be reflecting the awareness of a later age when Egyptian attitudes may have shifted. By the time of Herodotus, the Egyptians had developed a reputation for rigid sacrificial restrictions. So he's claiming that this was a, a historic anachronism. Hmm. Uh, yeah, it actually would have been fa- fascinating to hear Tova's uh, explanation of that. So maybe we'll come back to it next week. Uh, Barry. Sorry, my uh, internet's been going in and out. Um, uh, the question of the edge of the, of, of the midbar, uh, I, do, I call, do I recall correctly, where was Moshe at the burning bush? Uh, he was sending his sheep as father-in-law sheep at the edge of the almost to the midbar uh, did something about the being on the edge of the midbar and we all in our lives have experienced something of the nature where we're, we're at the edge of the known the edge to the unknown at that edge uh is where the uh the sensitivity to the god experience exists hmm. nice thank you Barry. yeah liminal places on the planet for liminal moments between a kind of a normal reality and a transcendent divine infused reality. Great. Not necessarily geographical on a map, but uh, experiential. Well, what I think you're saying is that sometimes when you're in that liminal space geographically on a map, it opens you up to like if you're if you're at the edge of the at the wilderness, if you if you're where civilization begins and non-civilization uh, ends, right? That there's something about that that can open up a deep spiritual well. It's not a guarantee, but it's a possibility. And I think that's what this three day is. It's a distance by foot to get to that point. A distance that foot that Moshe with his sheep got to. Yeah. Uh, Rick? Yeah, I, I looked because of Barry. Uh, back to chapter 3, verse 1, and uh, Moses and the sheep, it's uh, Achar Hamidbar there. So if you're on the other side of the wilderness, if you're on the, the Midian side, <laughs> I guess it's called Achar Hamidbar. Vayin Hag Etatzon Achar Hamidbar. Right, I remember our conversations then. Did it mean on the other side? Did it mean... Um... You know, uh, there were several possibilities for what achar could mean there, and it's not 100% precise. Yeah. Let's look at the, the next verse. Um, I'm going to end this about two minutes early because I have the staff coming into this room exactly at 930 to start our retreat. But let's look at the next verse, which Rashi also is quiet on. I'm going to read this one just for um, the, the interest of time. Verse 24. Vayomer Paro. So Pharaoh said, either Pharaoh said, back directly to Moshe and Aaron because this whole scene took place in front of them as Norm was suggesting before makes the most sense or the previous two verses were some kind of an interlude and Moshe has conferred with his associates and now he's back in Pharaoh's presence. Pharaoh said, Anochi ashalach etchem. I'm going to dispatch you. I'm going to send you. Uzvachtem And you will make a sacrifice to Adonai your God. Bamidbar. In the desert, right? Which is different than Ba'aretz. Uh, Remember, look at the end of verse 21, uh, where Pharaoh only partially relents and says, yeah, you can offer the sacrifice, but it has to be here. Now it seems that Pharaoh is relenting, relenting also geographically. But do not verily distance yourself. 
which I, I think we're supposed to read as a direct response to the three days, meaning you 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 can go the the, the shortest place out to where you can consider yourself to be Bamibar. Is this Pharaoh agreeing with Moshe's line of argumentation? If Moshe indeed said this in front of Pharaoh, that, you know what, you're right, it's probably not safe for you to do this here. So you can go out so that you don't get stoned by sacrificing something we don't need to stone. Just please don't uh, uh, don't go too far, maybe. And then a really interesting uh, last two words, ha'atiru ba'adi. Anyone know what the root ayin taf resh means? We had entreat from before, ha'atiru, yeah, didn't we? Yes, is that the same I, one is to entreat or to pray for. We actually just had it. Um, is it this week's part? Yeah, we have it. In this yeah, it's Right, this week's parsha. That Isaac uh, prayed for uh, Rivka, who was barren, um, and then Vayayaterlo that God God be, was entreated successfully. Right. So basically, what's Pharaoh saying to Moshe and Aaron, or particularly to Moshe in this uh, as he as he relents? Not only am I relenting, but please pray for me. There's something, I don't know, sweet, pitiful, um, uh, tender about this, right? Okay, you've convinced me. Don't make this sacrifice uh, here. Don't go that far because I'm not sending you away because from Pharaoh's perspective, you haven't asked for me to send you. This is not let my people go completely. All right, go do your sacrifice. And while you're there, please pray for me. It's, it's, it's almost a sympathetic um, read of a demonic pharaoh who is doing awful things to the Israelite people, but somehow believes that perhaps the Israelites, the Israelites praying on um, on his behalf, could be efficacious for him, right? And if I'm gonna if I'm gonna let you go do your sacrifice, put in a good word for me too. Uh, Rick, last comment because uh, the team is 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 uh, arriving at the door, and I want to start our retreat on time. Rick, and then Steve, you have to unmute Rick. Hi. Also at the Exodus, uh, uh, he says, Uverachtem Gamoti. Uh, uh, while you're praying, while you're blessing your God, you got to bless my God too. And uh, the Anochi here uh, says, I. So um, it, it's just an emphasis on, he's trying to emphasize his power. But yeah. um, he says it again uh, in the Exodus. Good. Uh, Stevie, your hand was up, but then it's down. So I'm assuming it's down. Uh, I'll, I'll save it for later. Okay, so next week we'll look at one comment on this verse. I think it's Ibn Ezra that I scrolled, I, I looked up. So if you want to look at it in advance, you can. And then Rashi will pick up starting to talk in verse 25. Um, uh, let me put in the chat one more time in case people join the chat late. Uh, please, please, please join the WhatsApp group for this class. It is just a much better way for me to update you, particularly last minute on on when a class will be scheduled or rescheduled okay so that click on that i'll give you a few seconds to do it if you haven't done it so that i can then close the zoom and have a good day everyone and early shabbat shalom and shalom al yisrael you have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from temple beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative judaism in los angeles if you enjoy these podcasts we invite you to write a review on the apple podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts for more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.